Good morning. I know Todd uh, railed me at church this past Sunday for not wearing socks. I'm still not wearing socks, for your information. <laughs> it's so good to be here with you this morning. Let's see if I can get this a little bit louder. So good to be here with you this morning. Uh, and it's so good to continue in this study that we have. Is, is, uh, we just heard when we have three more sessions together, which is uh, sad to me. I mean, we only have three more times before the summer hits, and this has been such a fruitful study that we've enjoyed so far as we've, as we've gone through uh, what Sandy put together, a study for the brothers. Just to remind you some of the things that we have been learning, we've been looking at different texts in the Bible uh, that show us as men, as our lives have been shaped by the gospel, how do we go about life and various aspects of life uh, for example, at the very beginning, we looked a lot at the letter of James and uh, John's epistles to see what true faith and true obedience and true love look like. How do we be men of those things? We spent a few uh, uh, sessions in Ephesians, particularly looking at our relationship with wives, our wives and our children. How's the, how does the gospel shape those relationships? We spent some time in the Old Testament, if you remember, seeing how we interact with the world and the culture around us as those who have been shaped by the gospel. And this morning, we're back in the book of Ephesians, chapter uh, 6, verses 5 through 9, to see uh, how the gospel shapes our lives at work. How we view work, how we go about work, and how we view others at work. And friends, there is some uh, wonderful reasons for us to study this particular passage Number one is, we all work. <laughs> uh, we all come from different backgrounds. Uh, we're all of different ages, different life experiences, but every single one of us works, so this passage is relevant. Uh, number two, um, even though if you don't work, if you're a student, um, you still work at school. Um, you put in a lot of hours studying whatever you need to study to get your degree. If you're retired, you work too. Uh, you either volunteer or your wife has turned you into a full-time yard man. But still, all of us work. We all have that experience. Uh, number three, it's important for us to study this because even though we spend most of our time at work, work in itself is not a necessary evil. The Greco-Roman culture thought work was a necessary evil. It was something that was beneath human beings. Philosophy was the thing to do. But we see Scripture completely destroys that argument. Work has dignity. And the reason is, is because you and I were designed to work. If you remember, God himself worked. And we were created in his image. And we work on behalf of him as his representatives. And he issued the command to be workers before the fall. So work is not a result of sin in the world. We were designed to work. And as Dorothy Sayers says, and Paul agrees in this passage, work is one of the primary avenues in which human beings, Christians, offer themselves to God. And that is one of the main things that we're going to look at today. Our places of work is one of the main areas in life in which we offer ourselves to God in worship. So it's important that we study this because, one, we all work. We all work a lot. We were designed to work. And work is one of the primary avenues in which we offer ourselves to the Lord. Another reason to study this is because many of us are dissatisfied at work. Many of us are dissatisfied because we don't think we have the job that we deserve. Um, the work that we're doing is not important or appreciated by those in society. Uh, statistics show that 50% of American workers are dissatisfied with their jobs for various reasons. We're going to look at that. All right, so we were designed to work. We worship God through work. All of us work, but many of us are just like the rest of the world, are dissatisfied in our work. 
And Paul has a lot to say about that, okay? So before we see what he says about work, I first want us to frame up the context of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It's hard to come in and out of these passages because uh, we miss the context. So here's the context. This context, uh, context is exactly the same in the passages prior to this when Paul talks about our relationships with our wives and our children. And the context is, as men who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that we go about life in our families and at work should be countercultural to how the world goes about those exact same things. Okay, we don't put ourselves first, we're not self-centered, we don't exalt our rights over others, but rather we submit to one another mutual submission out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see what that means in just a second, but let's just be forthright. That is difficult, especially in the context of work. Even though that I'm a pastor and I haven't had what one of my friends said recently, a real job since I was 24 years old, I know what that means. It means it's very hard to follow Jesus Christ out in the world. Why? Because the whole thing, economics, the way that the world has, has trained us to think about career and success, the ethos that many of us have in our workplaces, are very anti-Christian. And that makes it difficult for us to follow Jesus in those contexts. Many of us are surrounded by temptation every single day at work, by our coworkers, or even the bosses that we work for, to act in ways and think about work in ways that are counter to the ways of Jesus Christ. And many of us feel the pressure to go along with the flow, to play ball. And when we come to a passage like this, it's easy for us to think to ourselves, this is a little culturally irrelevant. Because business today is, is much more complicated and different than business was back then. And if you look at this, if you really apply this, it almost seems impractical and impossible. But friends, I want to tell you something, okay? God is not bound by context or time. His word is living. It's a living word. And as a word applies to every single one of us, no matter what our job is. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows the circumstances which you find yourself in. And he knows whatever pressure it is that you feel in life and at work. And that means then that we can trust exactly what he says. And when we apply what he says in the context of work in this passage, this is what happens according to Isaiah chapter 48. The Lord teaches you what is best for you. He directs you in the way that you should go, which is often the opposite direction of where the world is going. And should we listen, listen to this, our peace will be like a river and our well-being like the waves of the sea. And friends, those of us who are stressed out at work, who are frustrated in our jobs, what a promise that is. That even in that context, our peace could be like a river and our well-being like the waves of the sea. So friends, let us apply what the Lord teaches us through Paul. And now first, let's, let's see what Paul says to us. If you turn to Ephesians chapter, chapter, five, or verses, or chapter 6, rather, verses 5 through 9, this is what God through Paul tells us about work and how the gospel shapes us in our workplaces. He says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening. 
knowing that He is both their Master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with Him. This is the Word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning as Your people. And Father, we pray that You would settle our hearts and our spirits, and that Father, You would shape us, that we would be a people, as we just sang, that have the mind of Christ. That we would do things and live life not for the approval of man, but out of the approval we already have and the creator and king of all the cosmos, Jesus Christ. That we would be secured in him. That we would see the power of the gospel. And by your spirit, the implications of the gospel we would live out in every area of our life, including in the way that we work go about work, and view people at work. Help us, O Lord. Teach us for your servants listen. And it's in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. The first thing that we see in this passage right there in 5a is that the gospel transforms culture and our relationships. Okay, the gospel transforms culture and our relationships. Before we dive headlong into the context of work and what those applications and implications are for us, I first want us to take a little bit of a side road because if you notice in 5a, Paul raises a pretty big issue here. Uh, When he uses that word bondservant, what he's talking about is slavery. He addresses slaves in this passage, okay? Now, I want us to talk about this for several reasons. One, uh, because whatever Paul's intentions here are is a major topic of discussion out in the world, especially in in, uh, scholarly circles. Uh, It's a major issue that the Uh, non-Christians and the liberal society uses against Christianity. So we got to understand what Paul's real intentions are here. And secondly, once we understand his intentions, we understand how much of an implication what he's teaching here has in our lives. Okay, so let's take the side road, if you'd bear with me. Slavery. Back in the time period in the Roman Empire, uh, when this letter was written, slavery obviously was a very socially acceptable uh, institution in that empire. It was woven in every fabric of society. Okay, it was, it was a common practice. It was an accepted practice, obviously by slave owners, but also by slaves and those who were free and did not own slaves. Uh, it was estimated, the historians tell us, that during this time period, there were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Now, in terms of overall popula- population of the Roman Empire, that meant one-third of the Roman Empire population were slaves. Now, as you know, the gospel was pretty attractive to the lowly and disenfranchised. So scholars also tell us that a vast majority of the church at the very beginning were, in fact, slaves. In fact, in most contexts, you could expect the population of a local church to be about 90% slave. Okay, so slavery was in every facet of society, even in the church. Now, I know as, as Americans, when we see that word bondservant or we think about slavery, we automatically think about the horrific evil and atrocity that plagued our nation in the New World not more than 150 years ago. Now, there are some similarities there, but friends, we also have to understand there's some massive differences. First off, unlike the African slave trade we saw in the New World, back then in the Roman Empire, okay, uh, race was not an issue. In the New World, Africans were targeted and they were They were kidnapped from their families and from their people groups. But that wasn't the case in the Roman Empire. Race played no issue. In fact, those 60 million people, most of them were prisoners of war. In fact, a vast number of them actually sold themselves into slavery because they saw slavery as a better lot than the poverty they were experiencing otherwise. 
That's a major difference between the two institutions. A second difference is that most slaves in the Roman Empire could expect to be freed by the age of 30. Okay, slaves back then were actually given wages. They weren't given a lot of wages, okay? They weren't, they didn't have like health benefits or anything, but they still earned wages. And most scholars tell you then that if they were working for about seven years as a slave, by that seventh year, they had enough money to buy themselves freedom. And when that happened, they became Roman citizens. Vastly different than what we see in the New World. Another difference is uh, slaves back then received education. Most of their jobs were things such as doctors, lawyers, educators, and accountants. They were given education, which, of course, is vastly different than what happened in the New World. The point is that there's really no uh, similarity. It's apples and oranges, really, what happened in the Roman Empire and what our country experienced 150 years ago. It's a vast difference. But even though there is a vast difference between those two things, uh, what happened back then was still evil. It was more humane, but it was still evil. Because why? It involved image bearers of God being treated as tools, being bought and sold and being denied the dignity of being a human being. Now, it's because of that that liberal uh, scholars out there and new atheism and secular society, if you read the book Reason for God, I believe Tim Keller raises this as the point. And I heard this argument not too long ago myself. Uh, the world out there, because of that, because Paul did not come up and just outright speak against uh, slavery, they say that Christianity then is an oppressive practice because Paul did not, in this passage and other passages write it, just outright denounce the practice of slavery. Now, of course, they are wrong. If you just spend just this amount of time researching the context here, you know that Paul was very much opposed to every act of injustice, including slavery. But as you look at this passage, it's obvious that Paul did not outright speak against it, but still he was subversive about it. And the reason that he was subversive about it was twofold. Number one, remember, as I remember Sandy saying, Paul cared about people and he did not want to hurt people. Remember, slavery back then was vastly different than the evil injustices that we saw took place in the New World. Back then, if you had a good master, you could reasonably expect a good life. Slaves back then could have a family of their own. They had a roof over their head. They were given good jobs. They were given pay. And most people would rather have been a slave than a poor person back then. And Paul also knew that if slavery ended in just like that, you would have 60 million people out on the street in a world that did not care about them without the means of helping themselves. And the church would have been overwhelmed by that. All right, so he cared about those people, and he understood what would happen if it just ended overnight. But the main reason that he was subversive was because he understood the power of the gospel of Jesus. That if the gospel was truly believed and accepted and lived out by people, it would be the death nail to slavery, which, of course, it was. And the reason is, is because he knows the gospel, when it's believed and accepted, crumbles unjust relationships between Christians. And it creates mutual relationships of brotherhood. Now, to see how this plays out, all you got to do is go look at the book of Philemon. This book is absolutely incredible. In that book, Paul addresses a slave owner, Philemon, and he tells him that his runaway slave, Onesimus, he must be received as a brother. Now, that was hugely countercultural because back then, a slave owner had every right to, to treat his slave however he deemed fit. But Paul says, listen, this man disobeyed you but I'm commanding you to receive him as a brother. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Paul says, Onesimus is no longer a mere slave. He is more than a bondservant. He is your beloved brother to me and to you, so receive him. 
Then in verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience to Christ, meaning because I know that you are indwelt by the same spirit that I am and that Onesimus is, and because I know that you love Jesus and you're abiding in Jesus and following Jesus, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What is more than I say? Well, not only are you going to be restored to your brother Onesimus, but you're actually going to free him. Brotherhood relativizes unjust relationships. Paul understood that faith in Christ being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that obedience to Christ and understanding that we are family with one another. Not only are we going to be restored to one another, but every form of unjust relationship between us will crumble. Which, of course, is exactly what happened with Onesimus and Philemon. And the reason is, is because the gospel unites us. Friends, can you imagine how weird it would have been back then to be a slave and a slave owner? I mean, think about this. When the gospel took root, all sorts of crazy crazy things started happening. Slaves and slave owners became Christians, and most of those folks actually lived together in the same household. So this is what happened. When they worshiped together, can you imagine that, worshiping together? With someone who owns you, you're worshiping together with him. When this slave owner served their slave bread and wine, and when the slave served his master bread and wine, and they mutually said, this is the body and blood of Christ that was broken and shed for you. When they looked at each other in the eye and they said those things, everything changed for them. Because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ The faith that creates and the faith that evokes includes all sorts of people, both slave and free, into the one messianic family of God. It makes them family and brothers. And as Paul says elsewhere in Galatians, that means every single dividing wall of hostility and division crumbles. Not only were they saved by the ministry of reconciliation to be Jesus Christ, but as we see in 2 Corinthians 5, they themselves were given the ministry of reconciliation. So not only were these people in the same family, but they're on the same mission. And brothers, when that happens, every form of unjust relationships crumbles between believers because we're made one in Christ. Now, the the obvious context here is that Paul is showing them how powerful the gospel is, that it permeates even the, the unjust relationship of slave and slave master. That's how powerful the gospel is. But Paul is saying that there's an implication for us, too, as workers. And the implication is this, that the gospel must shape our lives as well, especially in the workplace. Because think about it. If if the gospel is so powerful that it can completely shape and transform the relationship between slave and slave owner, how much more can it shape your relationship with your coworkers and your bosses and your employees? That's that's the implication here. The gospel is so powerful that it shapes everything about us, including our relationships. Our our, our lives must be shaped by the gospel is what Paul is saying here. Now, this past weekend, uh, Mike Rhodes Jr., um, he taught Amen, I think, a couple summers ago. He led one of our young adult retreats. Some of y'all were there. And uh, uh, in his teaching, he was talking about, uh, he was teaching out of Corinthians, and he used this phrase that I'm going to steal Um, he said the church must be sure that it's more Christian than it is Corinthian. And his point was that the church in Corinth, um, it was a church, but as you know, if you've read 1 Corinthians, there was massive problems in that church. Um, They were doing all sorts of crazy and unjust and evil things towards one another. 
And what Paul was basically teaching them is, is that your lives are imaging culture more than it's imaging Christ. You're being more of a Corinthian than you are a Christian, was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. And I know that the problem with the church today, every problem that we experience with each other and every sin that we commit is because we're being more Corinthian than Christian. And one of the areas of life that it's easy for us to be more Corinthian than it is Christian is in the workplace. The way that we think about work, the way that we go about work, and the way that we treat others at work, it's easy for us to be more Corinthian than it is Christian. But what Paul is saying here is that the gospel is so powerful, it influences and directs and shapes every aspect of your life, including the place where you spend most of your time, in the workplace. And when the gospel takes root and grabs a hold of you, there are massive implications. Now, what are those implications? Number one, the gospel transforms the mindset of Christian employees. We see this in 5b through 8. That's what the gospel does when it grabs a hold of us. It completely transforms our mindset as Christian workers. Now, the first thing that this does, the gospel, is that it dignifies us. We see in the gospel and also in 5, verse 5, is that the gospel, Jesus Christ, he dignifies us. Now, the reason I say that is because in the first century, everyone in Ephesus would have addressed a slave owner. There were people of high status uh, and class. You would want to rub shoulders with that, with that person. I mean, he could be someone that would get you in life. But, but no one would have a relationship with a slave other than their owner. No one. You wouldn't waste time even addressing a slave. Okay, as Aristotle said, slaves were like tools. All right, it would be asinine of you to develop a relationship with a tool as it would with a slave. Because why? Slaves can't get you anywhere in life. They can't benefit you. They can't move you along in society. Don't even waste your breath having a conversation with them. That's how the world treats the lowly and disenfranchised. The entire Gospel of Luke tells us that the lowly and disenfranchised are oppressed by the world. And we see that today. The people who are lowly and disenfranchised or or less than in the culture's eyes, are mistreated in this world. But Paul is different. God is different. The gospel dignifies us. Look what the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 12. Those least respected among men are the most respected in the church. He's talking about all of those who have spiritual gifts and, and different places in their, in their church congregations. He's saying whoever is, is considered least among men out there in the world, they're the most respected in the church. That's what the gospel does. Jesus himself said in the parable of the workers, the last will be first and the first will be last. (laughs) And in Matthew 25, he calls the least of these in the world's eyes, my brethren. Can you imagine Jesus Christ, the creator and king of the cosmos, looks at the lowly and disenfranchised. He looks at the oppressed person, the slave, the sick, the enabled, or the disabled rather. And he calls those people my brothers. Do you see what the gospel does? I love it. It just turns the world up on its head. The gospel, Jesus, brings dignity to people that are not dignified by culture. It honors people. That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing honor to all people. And not only that, we see that the gospel also says that work itself has dignity. And I said this at the very beginning. And the reason that work has dignity is because God himself worked. It's not this necessary evil that we do to put a roof over our heads, even though sometimes work feels that way. But work you do, even if the world says it's insignificant and unimportant work, you can have dignity there because God himself worked. 
And you are his representative in the world. You work in his stead. Which means not only does your job have dignity in it, but all sorts of jobs have dignity. I know so many of us are just frustrated. We wish we had a a more prestigious job. We wish we had more pay. We wish we had more respect. We wish that we had a job that was actually actually, uh, parallel to the type of training that we have. And I understand that. But friends, do you understand that God in the Bible identified with two jobs? In the Old Testament, he was a gardener. And in the New Testament, he identified with being a carpenter. That is, it's not exactly what, what, what a white-collar job, if you know what I mean. If God came into the world, what would he be like? Well, a, a Greco-Roman person would say, well, obviously, he would be a philosopher. A Jewish person would say, well, obviously, he would be a military leader. An American would say, well, obviously, he'd be a business-savvy man on Wall Street. No, sir. <laughs> he came into this world blue-collar. He was a carpenter. And what that tells us is that there's no job too small out in the world that can not contain the glory of God. Do you understand how much dignity that would have given a slave? And friends, do you know how much dignity that gives us? Do you know how much dignity that gives us? Listen, I know some of us have jobs that we feel is oppressive. Many of us have jobs that, that we have no voice. We feel like we're being stepped over. And listen, Paul is in a masochist. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, slaves, if you have an opportunity to find freedom, take it. And if you have an opportunity to find a better job, take it. But some of us don't have that opportunity like many of the slaves didn't have that opportunity. And it's in that instance that we must understand what's happening here. Even though the world does not give you dignity, even though it does not show you the appreciation that you deserve, the king of the cosmos dignifies you. You are his people and you work on behalf of him as we're about to see. Jesus Christ dignifies us, whatever it is that you do. You're the most important person in this world as those who are indwelt by the spirit of Christ because you image Christ in all that you do. You're his workmanship. So all of us have dignity. That's the first thing that does. Second thing that it does is that when the gospel grabs a hold of you, it transforms our workplace into a sanctuary. 5b through 8. Not only does Jesus give us dignity, okay, but he transforms wherever that is that we work, behind a desk or driving a truck or out in the fields, into a sanctuary to worship him and to make him known. I'm serious. The register at Chick-fil-A is a chapel, and it's not because they serve Jesus chicken at Chick-fil-A, okay? It's it's delicious. (laughs) But it's because Jesus transforms wherever it is that we are into a sanctuary to worship him and to make him known. Listen, here's the thing. Paul commands workers to obey their masters. There's nothing new about that. Masters, of course, would have commanded their slaves to obey them. The difference here, though, is is the attitude and the motivations that goes behind Paul's call here. Back then, if you were a slave, you you would have been duplicitous. You would have been uh, conniving. You would have been resentful. And, of course, you would have. I mean, I would have been the same thing. And, of course, today when we see workers uh, who have lousy jobs, lousy pay, and even lousier bosses, we see a lot of back uh, biting. We see a lot of um, trash talking to boss when he's not around. We see a lot of irritability. We see a lot of sourpussing around. And that's why shows like The Office are so funny that depict those things because they're common experiences. But what Paul is saying here, to act in such a way is to be more of a Corinthian than it is a Christian. Because when Jesus Christ gets a hold of you, even in the worst circumstances, he transforms your job place into an opportunity to worship and to make him known. Look, in verses 5 through 8, we see how he does this. He mentions the name of Jesus Christ in every single one of those verses. 
And basically what he's telling you is, is that your boss isn't really the boss that you work for. That guy is just a fleshy man. Your boss, rather, is the creator and the king of the cosmos. And it's in him that your joy and your obedience and your peace lies. And when you understand that, it just transforms everything. Look at these amazing implications for the Christian worker. Number one, we respect our earthly bosses. Paul says, obey your boss with fear and trembling. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we live in constant fear and dread of whoever our boss is. In the New Testament, fear and trembling is always a connection with God, that we respect and revere the Lord. Now, does that mean that you view your boss the same way that you view the Lord? Absolutely not. That's called idolatry, okay? And if you really get down to it, there's not one person in this world that's really deserving of your respect, adoration, and reverence. But remember, Paul himself in 1 Corinthians said in chapter 2 that when he went to the Corinthians to preach them the gospel, he came to them in fear and trembling. Now, what was Paul saying? Paul was saying that out of his love and reverence for Jesus Christ, those of you who don't deserve it, I'm going to respect you too. Because my respect for you is not really based in you, but it's based in my relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you remember when Paul commands wives to respect their husbands? He commands them to do that not because husbands are deserving of it. (laughs) I know that I'm not deserving of my wife's respect, for crying out loud, but she does it anyway. Why? Because she loves and follows Jesus. What Paul is saying here, that, that, that we worship Christ when we respect and revere whoever it is that we work for. When, even if they're a Michael Scott from the office and are completely undeserving of any ounce of respect, we respect them anyway. Precisely when they don't deserve it because Jesus Christ respected us when we didn't deserve it. And we image Christ in the workplace when we show them respect. So the Christian worker works with respect. Secondly, he works with integrity. In 5D, Paul uses that phrase, sincere hearts, which means integrity. Friends, I know many of our jobs invite dishonest behavior. And it's not just because we want to stick it to our boss, but it's because sometimes our bosses create an avenue where dishonest behavior is expected. And I know many of us feel the the pressure to go along with the flow at the risk of our jobs. But it's precisely in those times that we remove ourselves out from under the authority of whoever our boss is. Why? Because they're leading us away from worshiping Jesus Christ. Some of the greatest encouragement I've ever received in the faith as a young man is when I've seen older men and women who have done that exact same thing, even at the cost of their job, because they were loyal to Jesus Christ. Paul calls this to a life of integrity because Jesus Christ is our ultimate master. So it changes the way that we go about life. We don't view work and life the way that the world does. We we view it through the eyes of Christ. We respect our bosses. We work with integrity. Thirdly, we work with a singular devotion to Jesus Christ. Paul says, don't work to be noticed by men. We are not people pleasers, which means we don't work hard when our boss is looking and we, you know, loaf off when he's not looking. (laughs) It doesn't mean that we work primarily for promotion and it doesn't mean that we work primarily for more pay. We don't work for our bosses, ultimately. Now, listen, promotions and extra pay are not bad things. We're not Quakers, for crying out loud. Extra tracks is a good thing, unless that's your only thing. Paul says that is not our primary devotion. He says we are slaves to Christ. And what that means is not only is Jesus our ultimate boss, but he is our master. And everything that we do is out of a heartfelt devotion, a singular devotion to him who is our Lord. So we work to please our master, the king of heaven. And if that gives us a promotion or if that, you know, exalts us in our boss's eyes, praise be the Lord. But that's not the reason that we do it. We do it because we want to please the Lord. And friends, 
The world needs to see that. They need to see that we are not enslaved by our incomes and that our ultimate master is not mammon, it's not Caesar or whatever boss is that we have. They need to see that the reason that we do a good job is because we love Jesus Christ and he is the master of our lives. That's a game changer. The gospel transforms us. We work with integrity. We respect our bosses. We work with a singular devotion to Christ. The reason that we do everything is to please and love and know Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we work with joy, or lastly, we work with joy. And that's what goodwill means. It means joy. Now, I know some of us can't imagine being joyful at work. Going to work is like getting a root canal every time you go. All right, I understand that. But what Paul is saying is that when you understand that Jesus Christ, the king of the cosmos, loves you, has honored you, and yet you're primarily in the service for him and that you're doing his bidding, that gives you joy. And that's the reason that Cambodians who dig ditches in the heart of the jungle can be more joyful than the business titans on Wall Street because they know that they're in the bidding and the work of the Lord. One of the greatest experiences I've ever had is when I go to Cambodia and I see these people who are so lowly and have jobs literally digging ditches They're the most joyful people I've ever met. Why? Because they know the Lord Jesus Christ and they're in a relationship with him and they do their job out of joy for him. That's the difference. Lastly, it transforms us because we understand that our motivation is our eschatological reward. Okay, most people, they ask uh, when they're taking a new job, how much is the pay? What are the health benefits? Is there a dental plan, which is a big deal? And there's nothing wrong with that unless, of course, that's your primary motivation. What Paul is saying here, if that's your primary motivation in the way that you go about business, you miss it. You miss the joy and the peace that Christ offers. Because, friends, the joy and the reward that the Christian receives in Christ is greater than any reward that you could ever receive in this world. You can experience some of that now. Just like those Cambodians, knowing that you're in the service of the Lord gives you more joy than any raise could give you. But Paul isn't talking about the here and now. He's talking about the eschatological reward when Christ returns. And when he returns, those of us who are faithful to him and are following Jesus Christ, when your work is done in this world, no matter how insignificant the world says it is, Christ will look upon you. And this is what he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that's the reason that we're not like this world because we have the promise that Jesus Christ turns slaves into kings. And one day he will drench you with all the glory and the riches of heaven. That is our reward. And Paul says, so Christian, have this mindset of Jesus Christ when you go to work. That your master is the high king of heaven who has bestowed upon you every dignity in the world of his brother, his co-laborer in his mission. And you have the promise that your master is coming back and when he does, he'll reward you with all the riches of heaven. So number one, the gospel transforms the Christian worker's mindset. And number two, the gospel, lastly, the gospel transforms the how and why of our leadership. Now, we see this in verse 9. Now, verse 9, Paul is addressing this to bosses, to masters. But I want us to understand, even if you're not a boss, okay, this verse applies to you. Because whether if you know it or not, every single one of us, whether if you're retired, a student, an employee, or, or a boss, you have influence over people. And people look to you. And we lead people in whatever ways that we might lead people. But all of us are a boss 
in some sense of the word. We, we influence folks. And what Paul is saying is that the gospel transforms how we go about leveraging that power and that influence. First and foremost, we see that we are servants of those that we lead. Those of you who are leaders, we are servants of those who we lead. And all of us are leaders, which means that you yourself are a servant of the people that you influence. Now, folks, that is completely counter to how the world goes about leadership. Look what Paul says in 9a. He tells masters to do the same to their slaves. To do what? Exactly what he just commanded them, the slaves to do. He's commanding the masters to do them as well. Now, what Paul is addressing here is that, that ethic of mutuality that exists in the church. That golden rule that Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 where he says, whatever you wish others to do, do also to them. This is why Paul says, you know, have the mind of Christ among yourselves. Count others more significant than yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, even those that you lead and employ. We are servants of those that we lead. Now, we know that this is a no-brainer. We're supposed to live that way. That's no radical teaching. We know that as Bible scholars. But friends, it is so easy for us to be Corinthian rather than Christian in the way that we lead people. It is so easy for us to use people as objects to get where we need to go. The world does that, and it's easy for us to do that as well. For example, uh, I'm stealing these from Sandy, uh, statistics. 24% of the workforce say that they would fire their boss if they had the opportunity. 75% of Americans say their major source of frustration and stress comes from their boss. Now, I know those of us in here who lead people, and all, we all lead people, I know that we are Christian men, and we probably don't fit within those statistics, but friends, we are men, and we are sinners, which means we're not above that. I know as a husband, when I'm stressed out sometimes, and when I'm feeling the pressure of a deadline, sometimes I intentionally make Sarah, or people that work with me, feel the stress that I do in order to get them to do what I want to do which is an extremely punk thing to do. And I'm so glad I have a wife that calls me out on that and causes me to repent when I do that. Because it's a very Corinthian way to go about life. It's not a Christian way to go about life. Now, even though that is, is about as wicked as you can get, of course, the world is more wicked. Statistics show that also 34% of the workforce find their bosses abusive, verbally, mentally, or otherwise. And of course, you know, some of y'all, I know that you work for a boss that's a really good piece of work. I know that statistic kind of hits home to you. But that's not a new thing. It's always been that way. That's why Paul says in here, masters, don't threaten your servants. That's the way the culture has always worked since the fall. It steps over people. It uses people to meet their own ends. But Paul says, not so with the church, not so with the Christian, not so with the Christian leader. You are a servant leader. Why? Because Jesus Christ, the true leader, was a servant leader. He came not to be served, but to serve, Christ says. And as those indwelt by his spirit, that's exactly what we do. I can't remember who it was, but it's one of the famous big-time preachers. I'm pretty sure it's John Piper, who was in the limelight all the time. And every morning because of that, he got to church early to clean the restrooms with the custodial staff. And he did that because he's under the constant temptation to think more of himself than he really is. And so he did that to remember that he is no better than anybody else that works for him and that his primary role as a leader is to be a servant. That's an amazing thing. Paul says we are Christian leaders, which means that we are servant leaders. Now, what does that mean? It means that we primarily work for the well-being of others. Now, I know we're running out of time, so we're going to have to run through some of these examples. I don't have a lot of business experience. and I'm not intelligent to how the business world works that well. And so I can't really speak intelligently into this, but I know that at least means that we look out for those that 
we employ that work for us. I know that in Memphis, the minimum wage is $7.50, and uh, folks tell us that the average dollar amount that one needs to make just to have the basic life in Memphis is $9, which means that people who are living off a minimum wage job can barely afford to have a life that is basic in Memphis. And I know many of you as Christian business leaders doing many wonderful things in order to fill that gap. I know at least it means that we look out for the well-being of our staff and the people that we employ. Many of my friends in the young adult department and peers of my own who did other things other than ministry and went into the business field. Right out of college and business school, they started working 65, 70 plus hours a week at their boss's advice. And they weren't doctors. And that's extremely, I'm so thankful for Sandy and and the work that, uh, the ethos that he instilled in this church and the current leadership that we have. As you know, Sandy was, uh, I mean, that man could put in some hours, um, okay? He, a 65-hour work week was a vacation for that man. That's just, I mean, he had a certain type of motor, and it worked for him. And even though he and the current leadership expect good work and efficient work from the staff today, he was always sure to make sure that we knew that our primary ministry were our wives and our families. And I'm so very thankful I work for a staff that cares for its employees and the families of its employees that make sure that we know that our ultimate identity is not in our work, but it's in Christ. And as Christian businessmen, we have to nurture that into the people that we lead, that your identity is not wrapped up in what you do. It's not wrapped up in your career or your profits. Your identity can only be found in Christ. As Christian leaders, some of y'all don't think that yourself as leaders in your church, but let me tell you, those of you who've been going to church, whatever church you go to for a long time, who've always lived in Memphis, who have much social capital and experience in life, you have more influence over the people in your churches than you know, especially those who are new to your church and new to the city of Memphis and who are lonely in your pews. And a very Corinthian way to go about that type of resource is to simply stay within our circles and just simply be indifferent to those who are lonely and suffering. I remember when I was an intern back in 2009, I did not know a soul other than my family in this church. And uh, there was a family that was a little bit older than myself who went out of their way, sacrificed their time spent with people they knew and loved well, sacrificed their comfort by inviting me and other young adults who barely knew anybody into their home every Thursday to watch the TV show Lost, which was a fantastic show. But we went into their house every Thursday because they saw a need. As leaders... They leverage their resources and their authority and, and, their, and their power and their influence to create community for those that needed a community. I met my wife in those Thursday meetings. That's what Christian leaders do. They see a need and they fill it. They, they go there and serve the people that need to be served. And isn't that the point of everything? We are given power, we're given titles, we're given influence and resources. We're blessed with those things, as we see in the Bible, to be a blessing to Others, that's how Christian leaders go about life. We are servants to those that we lead. Secondly, we see that the gospel changes the why of our leadership. And this is, we're about to wrap up. The gospel changes the why of why we lead, why we serve people as servants, because we understand that we are all servants of Jesus Christ. There is no difference between us. The dividing wall has been torn down. We are all servants of Jesus Christ. So that first subpoint is all ground is level at the foot of the cross. Go back and look at Romans 6.18, Ephesians 2.14, Galatians 3.28 later. But Paul says in this passage in 9C through D, do the same to them knowing that Christ is both their servant 
as both the servant's master and your master. And what Paul is saying there, it does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter what title this world has bestowed upon you. It does not matter in the slightest because all of us are slaves to Jesus Christ and his family. That's who we are. That's your primary, your primary job is not to be a CEO. It's not an employee. Your primary job is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in that Romans 6 passage. He calls us slaves of righteousness. What is righteousness? That is a life lived, following Jesus and making him known. That is our primary job. That is our primary mission as Christians. And we do that together. We're all slaves of righteousness. And what that means then is that the way that we treat each other out there should be no different than the way that we treat each other around the communion table. We're all brothers in the one family of God. The gospel changes absolutely everything about us, the way that we view ourselves and the way that we view each other. We're not just bosses. We're not just employees. We're not just the haves. We're not just the have-nots. We're not just single people. We're not just married people. We're not just older men. We're not just younger men. But we're all sinners saved by grace in Jesus Christ. That is who we are, and so we're united in that. Lastly, we're called to imitate the Lord. We're called to imitate him. Y'all may have heard that, uh, that saying that was attributed to author Vernon Howard who says, the strong doesn't mind others any more than a lion minds sheep. <laughs> and what that means is leaders, don't get caught up what other people think. All right? don't, it's not worth your time. Don't get caught up with them. Lions don't get caught up in the concerns of sheep. And of course, that's the way that the world goes about life, isn't it? That's the way that many of us have been treated out there. And that's common. That's just the way that the world works. But friends, thank God that's not how Jesus Christ works. Because Jesus Christ, the true lion, author Howard, loves the sheep so much so that he himself became a slain lamb, the true lion. He laid aside all of his rights and all of his privileges and all of his glory. He even gave up his life in order to give life to the sheep of this world. And Paul says, as those indwelt by the Spirit of Christ who are being transformed in the image of Christ, this is how we go about leadership in our life. We empty ourselves for the embetterment of those around us. Friends, this world is constantly shaping us to live a certain way, to live in its own image. And it's tough out there. But Paul says, understand what the gospel has done and has turned the world upside on its head. It has transformed everything. It's transformed everything about you. What Paul says is that the gospel, it gives us dignity. It does not matter who we are. So we show dignity to other people. The gospel transforms our work environment. No matter how porous your work environment is, no matter how much you hate your job, he transforms it into a sanctuary to where you can worship him and to make him known. Out there, there is division between us. But in Christ, there is no division. We are united. We are all slaves to Christ. We are co-laborers. We are brothers in the one family of God. So we serve each other. And even though that might cost us time, comfort, and money, we do it with joy. Because we know who we serve. It's the high king of heaven. And one day, he is coming back. So brothers, when you go out wherever you're about to go out that exit door, Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Don't be a Corinthian. Be who Christ made you. His people, his brothers, his servants. May we always view each other through the eyes of Christ. May we do all things to the glory of God, even our work.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for showing us what true humanity is. We thank You for showing us what true leadership is. Truly, Father, without Your incarnation and Jesus Christ, we would not even be able to imagine these things. They're that countercultural. But Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, for making Yourself completely known in Him, for showing us how much we are loved by You. And Lord, we pray that the implications of this gospel, that we are loved by You, that we are forgiven by You, that we have been received into Your family and given the greatest purpose in the world, to be Your hands and Your feet in the world, that that would transform and influence all the things that we do, even the way in which we work. We love You, Father. Be with us this day and every day. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.